This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, standing in for Brian Thompson as your guest presenter for this month's edition. Kicking off the new year, in our first edition for 2021, we have Associate Vice President at IFAD, Meike van Ginneken, joining us to sum up last year's response to the COVID-19 crisis. And she'll be looking forward to IFAD's first ever virtual governing council. In this month's episode, we'll be focusing on Indigenous peoples and youth as agents of change in the developing world. And with the 10th anniversary Indigenous Peoples Forum coming up in February, we'll be hearing from IFAD's Madia Praia Galetti, as well as project representatives Christopher Bartlett and Maria Manuel from Vanuatu. They've both been nominated to the Forum Awards. Focusing on the new proposals youth bring to agriculture for this new year, we talked to Liu Nianwa from China and we'll also introduce you to our new Aqua mini-series. We'll be talking to women leaders working with the Aqua Foundation about gender, nutrition, Afro-descendant peoples, climate change and this month, accompanied by Lina Medina from Colombia, about youth. Finalising this first edition for 2021, Guilherme Brady from FAO tells us about the UN Decade for Family Farming and our reporter Freddie Harvey-Williams brings us IFAD's new report on nature-based solutions. Remember we want to hear from you what you think about our stories and who you want us to be talking to, so please get in touch with us at podcasts at ifad.org. Please subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. First up, IFAD's Associate Vice President Meike van Ginneken brings us a summary of IFAD's response to the pandemic during 2020. The lessons learned from the COVID-19 crisis and how we've adapted will be reflected in this year's Governing Council. But how will this year's Governing Council be different? Will there be any big announcements? Meike gives us all the details about how IFAD's dealt with this health, economic and food crisis. At IFAD we did a number of things. First of all, we established a rural poor stimulus facility that gave an opportunity to provide additional resources to countries. We also ensured that many of our ongoing projects actually were restructured so that we had more activities that targeted COVID response in countries. And in total, we have an amount of about 142 million across 32 countries approved in terms of repurposing of funds. I think one thing we learned from the COVID pandemic is that we really need to work on the resilience of rural communities. We need to make sure that smallholders have some savings so that they can survive when the market is closed or when a harvest fails. I think a second lesson we can draw from COVID is the use of digital services. A lot of people have cell phones now. So how can we give information about the weather, about market prices to farmers? How can we make sure that we make more use of digital financial services? I think this idea of being flexible and repurposing funds when something happens is also a lesson we need to take as IFAD. We need to design our projects in a flexible way so that we can react if circumstances change and the needs of the communities we serve change. The Governing Council, actually a lot of it is focused on the business of IFAD, on the administration and on changes that our member states need to approve. 
But we also have a technical theme of the council. And this year for 2021, it's rural development, a prerequisite for global resilience. That's a very broad topic, but we will look at the lessons of the COVID-19 crisis and we will look how we will reassess and reaffirm development approaches on the path to recovery, rebuilding and resilience. Of course, resilience is not limited to pandemics or COVID-19. So we also look at the impact of climate change and making rural communities more climate resilient. There are drawbacks to large virtual meetings like the Governing Council, but there are also opportunities. And I think one of the big opportunities is that more people might be able to participate and contribute. And that's especially important for our developing country member states and developing country people that want to participate that normally would not be able to travel. In a way, doing a virtual event is a big equalizer. Yeah, the first announcement that will come out at the Governing Council is the adoption of the replenishment resolution. We've been through a number of discussions on replenishment with member states, and we're now in the period of pledging. But we hope that we will have a replenishment resolution with a target of scenario D. This means that replenishment will include $1.5 billion of pledges, which would give us a program of loan and grants, a POLG, of $3.8 billion. There are two other big announcements, both which have to do with our basic text, IFAD's Articles of Association. The first one is a change in the Articles of Association and the legal text to allow IFAD to borrow for more diversified sources. IFAD now has a credit rating, but in order to use that credit rating, we also need to change our Articles of Association. The second change is for us to be allowed to lend to the private sector. It means that IFAD can actually directly lend to private firms and doesn't have to go through governments. These two announcements are really major for the fund, more than 40 years after its inception, and it's part of our change process and our process to be a more flexible international finance institution. That was IFAD's Meike van Gineken. You can find out the latest on COVID-19 and IFAD's work at ifad.org forward slash COVID-19. Next up, we take a look at what's going on in this year's Indigenous Peoples Forum. This is Farms Food Future. This year is IFAD's Indigenous Peoples Forum 10th anniversary. It promotes dialogue between Indigenous Peoples organisations, IFAD and governments and has proven to be an effective instrument for policy and partnership development. IFAD's Matia Praia Galetti tells us about this year's forum and the difficulties Indigenous peoples are facing, especially with COVID-19, that we have to keep working towards solving. So this year, the focus, the main theme decided by the steering committee of the forum has been the value of Indigenous food systems, resilience in the context of COVID-19 pandemic. In view of next year UN Food System Summit, so it's a very timely theme. And regarding COVID-19, well, uh, this issue has been uh, pretty tough, uh, particular for indigenous communities for a number of reasons. They live in a very remote area, so very often information is not uh, reachable. If something happens, they have very limited access to health uh, structures, but also their livelihood have been badly affected. Those who are depending on, um, on markets and cash crops, 
they were not able uh, to sell, not ma- able to make a living out of it. So many of them went back uh, to their own uh, traditional uh, subsistence systems. And that was also quite interesting. Also, they had to put in place a mechanism of resilience. They went back to forms of mutual help and solidarity. They utilized the traditional knowledge, especially with regard to the use of medicinal plants. And of course, they did their best to make sure that any information could be accessible in in local languages. Normally, before the global meeting, we have uh, four uh, regional consultations, one per region, which means uh, Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the Pacific. And this time, uh, the steering committee of the forum uh, decided that, in a way, take advantage of the fact that we could not convene physically. And therefore, uh, they launched a series of 14 regional and sub-regional consultations. We counted more than 540 indigenous peoples, organizations reach out uh, during these uh, 14 consultations. There was a strong support uh, regarding the need of food sovereignty, in addition to food security, the support for agroecology, the support for a local seeds bank uh, in order to support their work uh, to preserve biodiversity. We know that um, the 6% of global population, which is composed of indigenous peoples, is uh, responsible for 80% of the world biodiversity. A number of calls regarding the importance of traditional knowledge and in particular how this traditional knowledge is relevant uh, with regard to indigenous food systems. There is a call for IFAD to act as a honest broker to facilitate the dialogue between um, indigenous peoples, organizations and local governments because uh, dialogue is very important on policy issues. Policy issues are crucial in particular with regard to access to natural resources and access to land. What else? Many, many, many things. Ah, Of course, the importance, looking forward to next year, the Food Systems Summit, looking at food systems, indigenous peoples have a lot to say. And we, as IFA, we should do our best to make sure that their voices will be heard. Only by allying with additional uh, partners that could be development agencies, bilateral, multilaterals, then uh, we can uh, enhance the impact of our work. Thank you, Madia. I also spoke to Programme Director Christopher Bartlett and Research Officer Maria Manuo from the Eden Hope Foundation. They work on and are a part of a project focused on empowering Indigenous women and youth in the Santa Mountain chain in Vanuatu, nominated for this year's Indigenous People's Forum Awards. Christopher tells us about the reality in Vanuatu and the importance of these indigenous communities' active involvement in the project. The project here in the Republic of Vanuatu is focusing on empowering indigenous youth and indigenous women, specifically on sustainable livelihoods in remote communities. So Vanuatu is a very small country in the Pacific Islands. Uh, We have around 300,000 people total uh, in the whole country, but they're spread across 83 different islands. So you can imagine some islands only have a handful of villages uh, with several hundred people. 
people. Other islands, like Santo being one of uh, the largest island in Vanuatu, uh, we have thousands of people, but also spread across uh, a huge range of different types of villages. So the west coast of Santo is probably one of the most remote parts of the entire country. Uh, here on west coast Santo, we have no roads. All transportation is by small boat that travel up and down a coastline of 100 kilometers. There's 42 different villages without electricity, without running water. We have very limited access to health and education services. And the over 5,000 people that live on the West Coast really depend on small-scale subsistence agriculture as their primary livelihood. Um, the entire population uh, of West Coast Santo is indigenous, Melanesian um, ethnic um, heritage. And this project is specifically working with those communities to improve the way that they relate with the environment. So our project is really focused on the extreme vulnerabilities of these communities. I've already mentioned the geographic isolation and remoteness, but incredible economic limitations. Everybody in these communities depends on a few crops uh, like cacao and copra coconuts for um, the very small income that's earned. And of course, Vanuatu has been ranked as the most vulnerable country in the world to natural disasters. In fact, in 2020, we had severe Category 5 Cyclone Herald smash directly into the west coast of Santo, and it disrupted the lives of the entire population. 528 households were completely destroyed. The schools were destroyed. Cash and food crops were destroyed. So extreme vulnerability. And what we found is that women and youth are not only more affected by these problems, but they also are the ones that have a wealth of traditional knowledge and ideas and leadership potential to actually solve and recover from some of these problems. The exacerbating problem, of course, is that women have widespread and culturally ingrained discrimination. It holds women back from taking on the leadership and taking on the solution spaces that they otherwise um, would be able to. And so this project is campaigning for women's empowerment and youth empowerment in decision-making spaces. And we're doing it, for example, working with high school uh, students, girls and boys to put a shining light on the inequalities and the discriminations that exist. We've also done quite a bit of social participatory research as part of this project where Indigenous women, for the first time, have been given the space and the time to articulate their aspirations for sustainable development. Um, out of that came a movie where 25 different young women uh, and older women shared their daily examples of how they've been disempowered from birth. For example, the way that they have to solely shoulder the domestic and child-rearing responsibilities, how some women are not even allowed to travel out of their village to workshops and other training activities, how young women are being uh, disempowered to play certain sports. For example, the women here in West Coast Santo are only really allowed to play volleyball, but some want to play soccer and they're not allowed by the other men or the young boys in, in the school. We, we had some amazing interviews and research come from school students saying that uh, the boys at the school expect that the girls will wash their clothes and clean their dishes just because they're girls. So really, this is systematic. This discrimination and disempowerment happens across the, the entire West Coast. I think the project is really trying to bridge lots of development challenges by focusing on gender equality and women's empowerment. I mean, 
other SDGs like SDG 13 on climate and disaster response, SDG 4 in terms of working you know, on education, SDG 8 in terms of economic, this small uh, business training, we focused on really the essentials. The women that attended the training told us that they had never had the opportunity to even hear about small business or learn basic principles of accounting or bookkeeping or, or receding or coming up with sustainable business ideas. The list goes on with clean water, SDG 6, water filters and doing water filtration. A lot of the women uh, here on the West Coast uh, rely exclusively on rivers and streams, all of which are polluted for drinking. And so providing water filters and doing training on water filtration and sanitation, all part of this project. So really this project is using the focus on gender equality and focus on indigenous empowerment to really across the board address the severe development challenges that we face here in Vanuatu and on the west coast of Santo. Maria is also a beneficiary from the project. She told me about her experience being an indigenous woman and what are some of the changes she's seen in her community. Uh, women here in um, West Coast, as well as most of the other communities in Vanuatu, most of the women, they lack knowledge or lack education. Because some women here in West Coast, maybe they go to primary school and then they don't continue their education, but they just stop halfway. Because here, women are supposed to be at home looking after their children and they don't need to further their studies, but they're needed at home mostly. So most of the women here, they don't go to school. They lack knowledge. They are shame. Shame is one of the negative impact. I would say that that affects most of the lives of the women here. So those are some of the things that we indigenous women face. It's not that they are not allowed, but that say they are ashamed to speak out their voice because they are, they are afraid that they might say something wrong. And then, yes, people will look down on them or something. Mostly men are the ones who do all the leadership work here. Women, apart from church, apart from religious uh, activities or religious positions, women don't take up leaderships on. It's mostly men. So those are some of the things that, um, yes, women face here. And through the workshops that we've been uh, giving out in the West area, it, ha- it has helped them and also give them some new ideas. So those are some of the things that we do. And the project has helped them open their minds to see, uh, like to get a big picture a view of what they can do in their villages that uh, before they were restricted to do, or they think that they were restricted to do. But now they've realized that they can also do some of things that uh, they've came to learn through the project to help their life the Indigenous Forum, it's where people came to share different ideas. I think it really helps because um, here, especially in Vanuatu or maybe in western part of Santo, I would say our minds are like in a box. So when other people give their views or talk about something, so we came to realize and it also opens our minds. Since our country is also a small country and here it's a remote place and they, they don't really involve with uh, outside uh, they learn a lot because uh, most of them, they don't have the chance to continue uh, education, but they can learn from others through this forum. Thanks to Christopher and Maria for calling in from Manuatu. Next up, we'll be talking about youth and their solutions on rural development. This is Farms Food Future. Leonianwa works with Sustainable Agriculture Group at the Summer Institute for China's Green Innovators and also studies digital agriculture. He's joining us to tell us all about it and about his visit to the IFAD-supported Innovative Poverty Reduction Programme in Sichuan. 
So it's a five uh, days visit in the one of the southwest uh, province in China, which called Sichuan. They have some like the small the rural holder, and we also saw some uh, teenagers there, some youth. They also participate in that kind of project. We have the really like great experience with uh, communicating with them about their experience, about what they have, about like how we could help them, like no matter in funding or but also in the technology way from my side. And I really hope to see like the technology uh, for the sustainable agriculture and for like maybe like um, some using some digital information. Um, but seriously, um, I should say it's not like really much like match to what I thought before. And it's not really like um, close to the like the latest technology. But we could also like see that they have catch up in some way, uh, not in planting, but in sales. They have like bring some e-commerce like from their sales uh, for their like their fruits and any other. Um, it's a really great news for us. And, to, but, um, and I hope that they could have more like the technology, also the hardware device or some information system in the software part, then we could bring them like no matter in technology, but also like their thoughts, like we should use uh, that kind of the system to help us like planting. But right now we haven't seen some of that uh, phenomenon. When I talk about like that kind of concept and they say, yeah, they have heard that, but sometimes they think that it's uh, really expensive, like including maybe you need to buy some uh, laptop, buy some PC, or you need to have some hardware device like UAV, then it could help you like the sustainable agriculture. They have some like um, right now at least they have some drip irrigation, but drip irrigation is the only like the hardware device right right now they have, and from the other side that they could also ask some expert to teach them like how to maybe how to plant and how to uh like like how to uh, keep their fruit like how to keep their soil like always. But it's some experience and it's some like the methodology, but <clears throat> they couldn't have some digitalized. They, right now, they don't have some hardware to support them from the digitalization uh, agriculture. From my background as a student, like in the remote sensing and geography information system, so I have like learned some like solution, including like in um, United States or in Europe. And but some of the previous solution, they will bring like really hard, like really big, and people can bring them like into the cob land. Like if you want to see like how many maybe like how many apples right now in my cob, they need to like check their data maybe in the office and then they could just they run to the problem. But from our suggestion and our a solution that we want to build some application that based on our mobile phone. We also use some algorithm and it will be like really free because we use some uh, open source data like in Ch from China or also like from Europe, like the Sentinel data. So it's a, it will really like benefit them. At least uh, right now we don't, we have the demo, but we don't have a like real um, solution in this side, but we have the idea that we need to bring them like some mobile solution. I think that it's time for us to really think from our uh, for our villagers for our like rural side how could they use some portable uh, device like our mobile phone and to bring them some benefit our a solution from our team that we we think that we could create that kind of the uh, app uh, for this uh, project like in from Ifa bring us that it is the first time that we could have a really deep connection with some farmer and I think that it's really 
really, really like important and crucial for like Chinese youth and teenagers right now. We need to have some connection with our farmers. That was Liu Nianhua from China. Next up, we kick off a new mini series focusing on women leaders from the Agro Foundation in Latin America, who will be talking to us about their area of expertise. This is Farms Food Future. We start our Aqua mini series about women leaders with part one on youth, talking to Lina Medina, a young entrepreneur who lives on a farm in Colombia. She runs her own business in which tradition, innovation, and agriculture come together as one. I asked Lina about what is key when trying to get young people interested in agriculture and make it their profession. This is a question of how we perceive agriculture and society. It's true that we young people love art, dancing, painting, and all types of art, but usually there are only two or three people that really stand out. However, we need to set up companies and generate income for our studies in order to progress. If we do not reinforce access to decent studies along with work, we will not be able to make a real change in our vision. So, I think what we need to do is actively involve young people in work in the countryside. But they need a profitable job, and they can't set up successful companies while living in the countryside. They can't build a company and establish it legally with all the difficulties that young farmers and isolated people like me face. So that's it. First, forget the idea that young people only dance and party and things like that. We need to work to generate income and change perspectives to show that entrepreneurship is possible in the countryside. Secondly, we see the need to encourage entrepreneurship and start our own businesses, but we're expected to perform as well as someone from the capital. If I want to set up my company, I have to travel to Quibdó, which is the closest city, the regional capital, simply in order to become legal. The will is there, but it's essential that organizations help young people take those steps, because many don't have the information or a good internet connection. Living in the countryside, you may not have access to quality education. To break down the barriers which are part and parcel of rural life, you need a good internet connection, access to entities and to opportunities. I run a company called Dulces Sonrisas, which is committed to agriculture and to rescuing the gastronomic traditions of the Pacific region where I live. I've taken what I've seen all my life, my grandmothers and my mother making sweets for Easter. And that's the key. Take agriculture, take traditions, showcase them and use them to do business. I'm also running an environmental education school with children from indigenous communities and Afro-communities in my territory. We're five women from the territory of Valle Solano leading the environmental school. We young people are committed to development. We say development, yes, but not on any terms. In the case of communities like mine, development is complex because you are here surrounded by nature. And then, from personal experience, people always say, ah, you're there in the jungle without a car and without being able to go to the shopping center. So I say like, hey, yes, I am here in the jungle, but here in the jungle, I'm happy. 
My shopping centre is the waterfalls. My walk on the weekend is to go and free turtles. So casual things, the life that you have maybe only for a week, I can have daily, you know? So bearing all this in mind, we can say that young people have a positive impact on climate change because we do want to develop and we want to have a good education and good jobs. But we also think that this good education will help us to generate development in a different way because many of us value living in a calm and peaceful place being able to breathe properly, more than having an amazing car or a big important job. Here you can also have a very good job, you work hard, and at the same time you protect the environment and live a peaceful life. So, yes to development, but not under the old conditions, which mean exploiting all the resources and ending up with no water. We can live with nature and, yes, extract what we need, but also replenish resources, grow more trees. Building businesses from agriculture is a sign that it is possible to generate economic development and at the same time take care of nature. Thank you to Lina Medina. You are listening to Farms Food Future. Next up, we'll be talking about the UN Decade of Family Farming and the Global Exchange Meeting with Parliamentarians on Public Policies and Legislations for Family Farming that took place last November. Gilhelma Brady, head of the Family Farming and Partnerships with Civil Society at FAO, told me about the importance of investing in family farming to achieve sustainable development goals and benefit smallholder farmers. What is interesting nowadays on the UN Decades is that they are approved to contribute to the achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. So it is a great recognition by the international community on the role that family farmers can have to promote uh, sustainable food systems, right? We are facing several challenges in our food systems nowadays, and uh, family farmers has this potential to to be, let's say, real real agents of transformation, to bring more sustainability, uh, to produce more better and bringing benefits to communities and to society. And the the interesting aspect is that working with and through family farmers and through its territories, you can address several different areas at once, right? Because you are working, let's say, on productive aspects, but at the same time, you are addressing social aspects, economic aspects, environmental aspects. They are interconnected. They they dialogue among themselves, so you you need to produce, but taking care of the environment, bringing benefits to the communities. And this is exactly what family farmers can bring. It allows you to reach good and cheap results in a very quick time, right? Because the, the potential is there. Very often, they are already working very limited resources and, uh, and support. So when you bring some credit or technical assistance, uh, rural extension services, environmental services, or uh, public purchase uh, programs that ensure that they will have a way to sell the production with uh, fair prices. The answer is, is really fast, right? And um, and it's not very expensive. I think it's really an area that is a, a promising area for the future. We we are having all this discussion in the, the global level, in the international community on sustainable food systems. And I think we have a good, um, a good answer working with family farmers to promote sustainable food systems. And what role do parliamentarians play in supporting these family farmers and in building their capacities? 
A very important one, very important one. The decade was launched May 2019, okay? And uh, before the launch of, of the UN decade, KO, IFA, the facilitated a very long uh, in, in the participatory process, consulting the different stakeholders on the main the main need, the main priority areas that we should bring into a global action plan for the UN decade on family farming, right? So having a, a, a structured framework of work for these 10 years of the UN decade on family farming. And one of the crucial aspects identified, and we have one uh, specific pillar dedicated to this, is a legal recognition in the national legislations about what family farming is what family farmers are, who they are, which are the criteria that identify uh, family farmers in a particular uh, context, in a national context. All the times, in order to be able to target specific policies to family farmers, you need to advance the formulation uh, of uh, regulations, uh, decrees, programs. You need to formulate and structure interconnected policies and we have several examples uh, in the world. One of them, just to mention, school feeding programs. Sometimes you can improve the nutrition in the schools, the quality of the food that the, the, the kids are receiving, buying it from family farmers. So here you have a very clear example of a connection between family farmers and nutrition programs and interventions. This is an example of how you can interconnect policies in order to achieve better results. Sometimes you need to update and enact the legislation or, very important, you need to allocate adequate resources in the national budgets to implement policies on family farming. So all of these areas that I was uh, mentioning are some examples of how parliamentarians can help and contribute. So they, they have a crucial role to play during the UN decade on family farming. That was Gilhelma Brady from FAO and this is Farms Food Future. Earlier this year, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature released a global standard for nature-based solutions. Off the back of this and the One Planet Summit earlier this month, IFAD is releasing the first in a technical online series presenting examples of nature-based solutions, key results and lessons learned from its flagship adaptation for smallholder agriculture programme. Freddie Harvey-Williams has this report. The concept of nature-based solutions reinforces that people are not just the passive beneficiaries of ecosystem services and biodiversity. They can also proactively protect, manage and restore natural ecosystems and the services that they provide, which represents a significant contribution to addressing climate change and other major societal challenges. The nature-based solutions concept is extremely relevant to IFAD's Adaptation for Smallholder Agriculture programme, known as ASAP. A collection of ASAP case studies, soon to be published as part of a new online report series, demonstrates IFAD's commitment to biodiversity-sensitive agriculture and the diverse potential of nature-based solutions. We see, for example, how mangrove restoration in Gambia provides natural resources such as wood fuel, protects from coastal erosion and replenishes fish stocks, how planting of shade trees in Nicaragua helps to sequester carbon and retain groundwater, whilst at the same time enhancing biodiversity, yields of crops and providing other natural resources. And in Laos, we see how microorganism treatments made from agricultural waste improve soil fertility and soil biodiversity, improving food security. These solutions, along with a great many others, are tailored and context-specific, with both natural and cultural factors being considered, as well as local, traditional and scientific knowledge. Due to their incredible diversity, it is important to highlight the successful use of nature-based solutions and best practices 
to encourage greater financial investment and engagement from all sectors. The report will be published early this year on the IFAD website. Thank you, Freddie, for that report. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thank you to our producer Francesco Manetti, our reporter Freddie Harvey-Williams and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcasts. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efad.org. Send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. Brian Thompson will be back in the presenter's chair at the end of February ready to celebrate International Women's Day with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Rosa Gonzalez-Goring, your guest presenter for this month and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening. 